guess as all of you heard uh, the introduction for our uh, guest today, um, Dr. J. Cameron Carr is coming from Duke, uh, where he's professor of theology and black church studies, and um, kind of just he brings uh, kind of an interdisciplinary discourse to some of these uh, various conversations this morning. Uh, you got to hear some good preaching uh, this afternoon, more of a lecture as he kind of brings in Bonhoeffer in interesting ways to talk about Bonhoeffer and us in kind of a, kind of a post-racial uh, conversation, what in the world that might mean. So anyways, what, just so you kind of anticipate, know where we're going here, the, the format will be about 35 minutes or so of him kind of uh, lecturing, uh, laying the table. But then what's always nice in these settings is to follow that up with a time of, we can call it Q&A, but a, con a time of discussion. I'll stand up, and that way I'm the bad guy if some of you aren't asking questions but giving lectures. I'll, I'll tell you no. But, but so I, we want to actually provide plenty of time for that, you know, 15 minutes or more, depending on how that goes. Um, so as he's talking, write down things that, man, that sounds crazy. That sounds really interesting. What do you think? You know, whatever. Um, be ready to, to engage in conversation afterwards so it can be very meaningful. Let me, let me pray for us really quick and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your good creation. Mm -hmm. We thank you that there are not questions that we can ask that frighten you. We thank you that you are present in and by your spirit. And so we commit this time to you. Be with our guest. Give him mercy. Give us the ability to listen and to wrestle. These things we pray in the name of our Lord. All right. Good afternoon to everybody. Um, I want to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer today and um, talk about, really, it's, it's a kind of reflection in some sense, some comments that I want to offer um, around a few years now of starting to wrestle with, with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I think that maybe one way to try and bring out the significance of Bonhoeffer is to try and frame him uh, against the backdrop and in relationship to um, the kind of emerging discourse and consolidating discourse around the post-racial that, that is increasingly circulating in public culture. Um, but in order to sort of lay this out, so let, me, let me begin first by saying a little bit about um, the post-racial, and then I'm going to step back and look at Bonhoeffer, because I think Bonhoeffer um, offers us a way to probably recast um, the discourse of the post-racial. The post-racial, um, the register of the post-racial really starts to um, bear down upon us, I think, um, uh, um, in light of uh, President Barack Obama's uh, coming into power. Um, many people, as you recall, from the 2008 election season and now the 2012 election season, but especially in the 2008 election season, you'll recall that many were thinking and hoping, and there was great hope placed upon the election of Obama. If for no other reason that there was, there was great hope that Obama would represent, his election would represent. Now again, whether or not this was too much weight to put upon it is another question. But I do think nevertheless it was the case that there was the great hope that Obama's election would signify for our culture, our society, of a kind of overcoming, shall we say, of the problem of race. A kind of getting off of our proverbial back, that kind of 
um, bedeviling um, 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 monkey holding on to us the problem of race. You know, this sense of if we elect Obama, then it, it, it represents not just the moving forward of the country, but the country's veritable overcoming of something and the opening up of a new dawn, a new kind of um, um, possibilities for relationships, for cultural relationships, race relations. This was the election of, of Obama and what it came to, in a certain sense, culturally signify. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that with this rhetoric of the overcoming of race, the overcoming of our kind of history of racial antagonisms, that the post-racial, in many ways, didn't represent the overcoming of that, but, and here's my claim, the post-racial represented a new manifestation of the racial. Now, we know the proof, there are many things we could point to as the proof of this. There's the famous uh, beer summit when uh, <laughs> Henry Louis Gates um, returns from doing some research. I think he was actually coming back from the Caribbean. He's doing some research. He returns home um, in, in Cambridge, you know, near Harvard, and he's arrested on his own porch. Um, and the officer that did the arresting and arguably possibly the harassing in, uh, as a part of the arresting, this officer and Gates are brought to um, Obama's, uh, brought to the White House and enter into a kind of uh, the now famous beer summit to sort of talk through these issues, right? And so supposedly when we're supposed to be past race, the problem of race sort of finds Obama. Right? Even though he doesn't necessarily want to talk about race, right? he doesn't go out of his way to sort of talk about race. It just, so to speak, tracks him down. It's like a friend of mine. <laughs> he, got a, you know, he finished grad school at a school coming out um, in California. I was on his dissertation. I was an external reader of his dissertation. And he got his first job at a, um, a Christian college, no less, which I won't leave nameless because I'm, I'm sure that more than a few of you know the school. He got a job at this Christian, um, pretty, pretty famous Christian college. And when he got there, within a few, within about three weeks of his arrival and starting teaching, um, there's a there was a student organization there, again, I'll leave it nameless, and they published a satire around him. He's an African-American guy, he's really tall, really tall. And it just so happens he has a name, uh, uh, he shares the name with a pretty famous basketball player. So he himself is tall, and he used to actually play basketball for a European, the European Basketball League, whatever it's called. And then he came back to the U.S. and he got into academics and he got his Ph.D. and he got this job. And he shares his name with this famous basketball player, himself being tall. So they made a spoof about this person, my friend, and because he was the first African-American to be brought on the faculty at this school teaching in the area of theology and ethics. And the spoof playing, playing off of him was suggesting that the only reason he got the job was because he was black and a sports figure. It was a mess. And a whole, I mean, it just jumped off from there. So I was talking to him once. He called me. I, I was in my neighborhood. I was jogging. I had my iPhone on. I was running. He calls me up. And he says, Jay, I got to tell you what happened. So I start walking, he tells me, and I'm getting furious he's telling me this story. I said, man, this is crazy. He said, Jay, I, I, I just wanted to study theology and ethics. I didn't get into this to talk about race. I didn't, 
I said, I said, I'll recall his name. I said his name. I said, brother, listen. One of the things we know about race is this in this country. If you're black, you don't have to talk about it. It's going to find you. You don't have to go look for it. It'll find you. I said, and your experience at this school shows you exactly what I'm talking about. Similarly, with Obama, at every turn, in a supposedly post-racial environment, race keeps tracking him down. We could talk about the Sherry Sherrard um, affair, an event. This black woman who loses her job and, um, in the government and the way in which Obama gets drawn into this. And she herself came from a very active civil rights family. And the whole mess that blew up from there and the whole way in which race came. But the mo most recent, um, not most recent, but perhaps the most tragic display of race tracking down Obama in the supposed post-racial environment is, was around the death of Trayvon Martin. Around the death of Trayvon Martin. And it, everything was fine when Obama did not himself sort of give any indications about the racial dimensions, potential racial dimensions of this. And so when he said that we will do everything we can to support the Justice Department to find out what is going on, he had bipartisan support for what he was saying. But the minute he says, and it was time too, he made a calculated decision to do this. He was in the Rose Garden, if you recall. He's flanked on one side by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and I forget the other person who's on the other side. He starts <laughs> to talk about what's going on, and he, in a very calculated way, he says, you know, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. And it was at that moment that the kind of bipartisan coalition of support around Obama and how he was handling this fractured it, split left and right. And he was charged with being a race baiter and all this other kind of stuff. Now, the question for me is this, if this is an ostensibly post-racial time, why is it that race keeps tracking him down? Not just him, us down. Not just him, us down. What do we mean then by the post-racial? What are we talking about when we say the post-racial? Well, here's my basic claim, and I've already said it, I'll say it again. The post-racial is not we've overcome race. The post-racial is the new form of the racial. It is that form of the racial that now refuses to name itself as the racial. It is that form of the racial that represses its own racial operations. Such that if you even name it as such, you come under attack and interrogation. That's a new form of racial performance and racial practice. Is there a way to think the post-racial otherwise? Not the way in which we've come to sort of perform the post-racial through a kind of repressive re-performance of the racial, is there a way to possibly think about the post-racial as an interrogation of race and not just as the repressed denial and refusal of it? Enter Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I want to give a few minutes, this is going to be a fleeting, a, a kind of blazing summary of what I take a whole semester to do with my students to talk about Bonhoeffer and I compressed into a week <laughs> at Indiana Wesleyan uh, university, which Christiana was a wonderful student participant in. I I'm going to give you a very comp 
expressed reading of Bonhoeffer. Because I want to mobilize Bonhoeffer as possibly opening up for us another way to think the racial slash the post-racial. Where the racial slash the post-racial becomes a practice of interrogation, not a practice of repression, through which race and racial performance and racism gets reproduced. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, one, the, the, the presentation of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I want to make is different from that presentation of Bonhoeffer that's in now wide circulation by um, the Metaxas biography. I know some of you may know of the Metaxas biography. What I'm getting ready to lay out is in specific counterpoint to Metaxas. There are a number of points where I think the Metaxas biography is profoundly problematic. <coughs> Here's at the core of my reading of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think to appreciate what he represents, we have, to, we have to in many ways disentangle Bonhoeffer from a sedimented history of reception that we are now all inside of. We must bear in mind that Dietrich Bonhoeffer that, we, that we've received enters the Anglophone world in a crucial moment in history. He enters the <laughs> Anglophone world first through translation, right, of sections of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, into English. First in the British scene and from there into the U.S. Anglophone world. His translation in the beginning of his reception for us takes off, right, in the, in the end of the 1940s after World War II. This is a crucial, crucial time in the Western imagination. The end of the 1940s, post-Auschwitz, post-World War II, is a moment in history in which the Western world is actually trying to now reconsolidate its place in the world, given the massive war and fragmentation of its own identity. Right? Particularly on the European continent, we really see this. Europe is literally devastated by bombs, whether we're talking in France, whether we're talking in Germany, whether we're talking in Britain, England. It's devastated. Its infrastructure is crumbling because of the bombardment, because of the war. The U.S. stands ready and poised to step in the breach and to try and, shall we say, pull the pieces of the West back together again. This is the moment where, in other words, we're getting ready to enter into late modern capitalism. That's what's happening. It's in this time also that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I want to claim, gets mobilized to do important work for also a Christian world, a Western Christian world that has also been fragmented. Remember, these were Western Christians that were behind Auschwitz. Christians did this. So now Christianity is also facing, particularly Western Christianity, is facing a deep internal crisis. How can we re-articulate what it means for us to be Christian, given the way in which Christianity was culpable in what happened in Auschwitz, in the warfare between Germany and the Allied powers? Can there be another vision of Christianity, even as we struggle to think through another vision of the, of the Western world? Enter Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or shall we say a certain reception of him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets mobilized for a new kind of vision of a, a Christian righteousness. That's the way we received Bonhoeffer. 
And by the time this reception of Bonhoeffer in the Anglophone world matures, it's going to come all the way down to the 1960s, especially the 1970s, when that little book, The Cost of Discipleship, enters into a kind of new and important translation coming into the U.S. This is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer that has animated so much of evangelical Christianity. This is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer that Christianity today loves. And indeed, it's the Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that history of reception, that in many ways, if you want to understand the Metaxas biography, you must understand that biography as the culmination of that trajectory in which Metaxas is going to give us a Bonhoeffer who is all about a Christian champion of freedom. And indeed, not just a Christian champion of freedom, but a counterpoint, according to Metaxas at least, of the renegade kind of Christianity that we see going on with Bonhoeffer. You've got to ask yourself, why is the Metaxas biography a favorite of Glenn Black? What that mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, get your laugh out. I mean, I think it's funny, too. But after you get your laugh out, you got to just punish. Like, now, what does that mean? How does that work? What are the operations that make that work? I want to suggest again, Bonhoeffer has been brought into a history of reception in which he becomes the spokesperson, the representative of a healed Christianity that is working in perfect synchrony with the West. And not just with the West, but with the leading, um, the leading nation of the Western world, shall we say, the U.S. And that biography drops at a moment in which, particularly on the Christian right, maybe the political Christian right as well, uh, uh, Barack Obama is a figure in question. His Christianity is questionable, right? That was the whole point of aligning him with Jeremiah Wright. He either is a questionable Christian with all that black theology craziness from Jeremiah Wright. <laughs> I was supposed to laugh. <laughs> Jeremiah Wright. Or if it's an aberrant Christianity at all, on one side, it might be non-Christianity on the other. He's really a Muslim. He's really a Muslim, right? The point, again, is that Obama's Christianity has always been a part of the questioning of his legitimacy as a citizen, as fit to be a representative of the United States. And the Bonhoeffer biography emerges in this context. Now, there's another way to read Bonhoeffer, actually, right? And this is where I'm going to do a lot of kind of summary of some of the give you the highlights of some of my Bonhoeffer class, and then bring you to an important point in the letters and papers from prison. I want to suggest to us that we have to read Bonhoeffer inside of a wide-ranging geography. The young Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by the time he is 22, this man is working on his second, not his first, his second doctorate. Let me say that again. By the, time, by the time he's 22, he's working on his second, not his first, doctorate. Okay? This was a profoundly ambitious young man. Not only that, he was the student, one of the last students of the venerable theologian and church historian, Adolf von Harnack. Now, Adolf von Harnack is significant because Adolf von Harnack wrote the document that the academics at the University of Berlin all signed 
in support of Germany going to war in World War I to defend its Lebensraum. That's, that's who his teacher was. And the agent Harnack saw this young, ambitious, smart young man and basically did an Elijah to Elisha on him. He anointed this. You are the future. Put his hands on him. Put his hands on him. And so the young Bonhoeffer has the imprimatur of the, 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 the final kind of theologian of the great 19th century era that begins with Schleiermacher. It goes from Schleiermacher to Harnack. He receives the anointing to be the future of theology for the 20th century. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. While he's studying theology, between semesters at University of Tübingen and then he goes to Berlin, he takes a trip down to Rome and even crosses the Mediterranean into northern Algeria. In other words, he first surveys and rehearses the past of the West as they take it as emerging out of the Greco-Roman scene. And he crosses the Mediterranean, which is where the Greco-Roman world oriented itself. He crosses the Mediterranean, goes into Africa, northern Africa, comes back, finishes his academic work. He takes a pastorate before he turns in his, his second dissertation. Did I say that already? Um, he takes a pastorate in Barcelona, Spain. Now, watch the geography. If I had a map, I would put this up because the geography itself begins to tell the story. The young Bonhoeffer starts to retrace the path of the very development of the Western world. The, the, the geography, the geographical development of the Western world almost gets rehearsed again in his very life. And it gets hurt, rehearsed in his very life as he's learning and becoming proficient as a theologian. So the retracing of the geography of the Western world coordinates with his becoming a Christian, a Christian theologian. He goes to the Mediterranean world, comes back to Berlin, does the coursework that he needs to do. He's writing his dissertation, but while he's writing it, he goes to Barcelona, the Iberian Peninsula. This is very important. He takes up a pastorate there among an expatriate group of German Christians in Barcelona. He falls in love with bullfighting. Important. He falls in love with the culture of bruising the culture of bruising as sport through the making of a certain kind of stout man. That's the culture he falls in love with. And that is in continuity with the long history, right, of the making of German masculinity, which is, of course, part of the history of the making of Western masculinity. After he finishes in Barcelona, we're in the Iberian Peninsula, he comes back to Berlin, turns in his dissertation, he's now a doctor. He has an opportunity to become one of the youngest teachers to start teaching at the University of Berlin. But one of, he had many benefactors. They saw his ambition. He always looked out for them. Whenever an opportunity would come, they would say, listen, come here, come here, come here. Give him a little opportunity. Here's another opportunity. They were setting this young man up. He's on an upward climb. The young Bonhoeffer is very ambitious. In fact, in one of his lectures when he's in Barcelona, I'll come back to what happens when he goes back to Germany. In one of his lectures in Barcelona, he gives a compressed presentation of his dissertation work on ethics. 
He's got all of the moves, many of the later moves he's going to have on ethics. But in, inside this lecture on ethics, he talks about, again, the centrality of the fatherland. The fatherland. And in fact, he reads it all Christologically. What does Christ do? Christ opens up the possibility for us to love the fatherland beyond measure, even to the point of dying for the fatherland. This is very important because at this point, Bonhoeffer, there's no daylight really between Bonhoeffer and a certain kind of Aryan sensibility. The genius might be a kind of mad genius at this point, but the genius of Bonhoeffer is that he's now put it on Christological footing. That's Barcelona. He goes back, turns in his dissertation. He gets this opportunity to go on a fellowship, right? The Sloan Fellowship, to become a student at Union Theological Seminary in New York City and at Columbia University. This is very important. He's in the Metropolitan Center of Berlin. He gets his, he's working on his degrees, becoming proficient as a theologian as the place in which he will enter into his own maturity as a German man. He goes to Rome, the Greco-Roman world, falls in love with the kind of ancient Catholicism that he still sees the relics of when he goes to the basilicas and so forth. He comes back. He then goes to Barcelona, Barcelona, the Iberian world. He comes back. Right? He's tracing the spread, so to speak, in his own geography, the spread of the West from the Mediterranean through to, to Iberia. And anybody that knows the history of the unfolding of, 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 of the modern European world, you know what's coming next, the transatlantic. And I'll be doggone. He gets a scholarship, a fellowship to cross the Atlantic, again, retracing the steps of the West and its spread to become a kind of global site by coming into Iberia, leaving from Iberia to go into the Caribbean, Bonhoeffer himself traces that again. He's now in New York City. But in New York City, something happens that he had not anticipated. While in New York City, Bonhoeffer becomes the friend of one of the first, I think he was the third African-American student of Union Theological Seminary, a guy named Frank Fisher. Frank Fisher a minister, and he attended the Abyssinian Baptist Church where Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was the pastor. I think many of you might have heard of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. who served in politics. That's his son. But Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was the pastor of the famous African-American church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Well, Bonhoeffer befriends Fisher, and Fisher invites Bonhoeffer on Wednesday nights and on the weekends to come to church with him. Now, you gotta understand what this means. Bonhoeffer, in effect, and stay with me on the, spatial, the spatialization of this, Bonhoeffer, in effect, is brought by way of union to, the, to a but. He comes to the, to the upper regions, right, of the racial world, as it comes to a but the black world of Harlem. And indeed, we have to understand the black world of Harlem not simply as simply a point in New York City, you gotta understand it as a nodal point, right? And what Paul Gilroy wrote this very important book. Give me a moment. Sure. This is um, the year when he goes to New York City, you're asking me? He goes to New York City, I believe this is 29, um, the academic year 2930, 
I believe this is when he's in. So he's at the, he goes to Harlem, in other words, then, at the end of the Harlem Renaissance. This is the moment of the Harlem Renaissance. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer steps inside of the space of the Harlem Renaissance, the space of W.E.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston. All of them are in, they're in New York City. They're in Harlem, right? County Cullen and on. And, I mean, all of these great literary figures, Bonhoeffer is on the edge, right? It, it, I don't know if any of you have been to um, Union Theological Seminary in Columbia University in New York City, but literally the geography of it all, it, it, it basically, um, the Lower West Side, Lower Manhattan, basically cuts itself off and, and made to abut Black Harlem. The space of blackness and the space of Manhattan is literally marked off. And so you know when you've gone into Harlem. In fact, the train system there, the subway comes up and becomes an L coming right into Harlem. So you know when you go into Harlem. Where's Bonhoeffer? Bonhoeffer, to the extent that he stays in, on the campus of Columbia Union Seminary, he's taken to the edge of the Western world. But then, by way of um, Frank Fisher, he's drawn over and pulled inside of the spaces of colonization, the spaces of blackness, as it were. And it's inside those spaces that Bonhoeffer basically gets more than he's bargained for. It's the first time that he comes under pressure himself. He's no longer a kind of anthropological observer. He is now forced to reflect on his own formation as a white Christian subject. It's the first time he ever is forced to do this. Throughout the semester, throughout the academic year, he goes into Harlem. He's teaching Sunday school. He's hearing the sermons. He's hearing the preaching. And further still, he's hearing, very importantly, a massive literary philosophical, theoretical conversation that's taking place. This conversation is what I call an interrogation of the ways in which a certain vision of who Jesus is has been made to support what, what Western visions of its own supremacy. Counting Cullen writes this long poem called The Black Christ. And the whole poem is this long extended meditation on the ways in which the Christ figure has been made and sutured to a dominating U.S. culture that has aided and abetted the lynching of black people. Most recently, James Cone's recent book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is all about this problematic. He talks about Langston Hughes and County Cullen in this text. Bonhoeffer, when he goes to New York City, is actually brought inside this world. And we know from letters that he wrote back home how deeply it affected him, how the music of these churches affected him, and how they forced him to think otherwise, to really think through that this might be the place where a different kind of vibrant living Christianity is going on. Now, from my vantage point, it isn't that Bonhoeffer fully grasped at that moment what he was facing, what he had stepped inside of. I want to contend that it's not until the prison letter that the full force of it really begins to unfold. His life post Harlem is an ongoing unraveling of the import of what he encountered when he enters into the spaces of the black Atlantic. And it's not just Harlem that he entered into. Between 
his fall semester and his spring semester, he goes to Washington, D.C. and visits Howard University. Now, again, Howard is very important because basically in the U.S., the Black Atlantic was constituted through three crucial sites, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Those are the three sites where all this important literary and philosophical and sociological work is being produced to really theorize the ways in which spaces of blackness, spaces of non-whiteness are the invisible zones that help solidify and constitute these normalized spaces of white citizenship and so on and so forth. These black intellectuals are trying to think that out. Bonhoeffer comes into New York City. He goes to Washington, D.C., to Howard University, and we know he has conversations with these philosophers at Howard, these black philosophers at Howard, who are thinking about this, not the least of which is one of the most important philosophers of that time, a guy named Alain Locke. Locke is very important because Locke edits the anthology called The New Negro, The New Negro Anthology, in which the who's who, veritably, of black cultural thinkers write inside this journal, write inside of, publish a piece inside of The New Negro. This is edited by um, Alain Locke. Then, this is between semesters, he then leaves Washington, D.C., and then Bonhoeffer goes to Cuba. <laughs> he goes to Cuba. Now, this is significant on many, many levels, most of which I can't get into here, but let me just sort of keep working the spatial and the ge geographical here. Because I've been saying that Bonhoeffer has to be understood as retracing the circuitry of modern globality. The, retracing the circuitry by which the West comes to be a kind of power of supremacy on the globe. But now I'm suggesting he now enters into that invisible sphere that makes all that possible. The sphere of the Black Atlantic. And I've taken you from Harlem, not just New York City, but Harlem, and by way of Harlem, to Washington, D.C., and then by way of Washington, D.C., then to Cuba. Cuba is significant because the Western Hemisphere is opened up through Cuba. The famous year is 1492 with Christopher Columbus. Columbus leaves the Iberian Peninsula. Remember I told you he was in Barcelona? Columbus leaves the Iberian Peninsula, and the Western world is constituted by way of Columbus going to the landmass that we now call Cuba. That's where he first lands, the landmass called Cuba. And so do we have, we have Bonhoeffer basically retracing the whole global circuitry by which the, the modern world comes to be established. And what he is in effect wrestling with, forced to look at, is the production of a new figure of the human that sort of makes all of this work, the figure of Western man, and how that figure aligns itself up with the Christ figure to solidify, to render itself righteous on the stage of the global sphere. When Bonhoeffer goes back to New York City, oh, I forgot to mention, there's one other thing. He goes back to New York City, he finishes the semester, and before he gets on his steamboat, 
called the America, by the way, to go back to Europe, he takes one final trip. He and his friend, Jean Lasserre, they go to Mexico and they survey the Aztec ruins. They survey the Aztec ruins. In other words, they revisit the other crucial scene of early modern coloniality and colonialism. The first one is Christopher Columbus, who opens up the Western world for, West, for European domination. The other big one, that's just the Caribbean, the islands. The one who actually penetrates into the landmass is Hernan Cortez, and he does this by conquering the Aztec Empire. So Bonhoeffer is, in effect, retraced the whole circuitry of how the modern world comes to be. And through the analyses of religion and the kind of critiques of Christianity that are happening through the Black Atlantic, he is forced to try and rethink the ways in which the Christianity's key figure, Jesus Christ, has been sutured to the project of the West to give the Western world the aura of supremacy and righteousness. When Bonhoeffer comes back to Germany, all of his writings, all of his struggles now get illuminated against that backdrop. One could argue, and I certainly want to argue, that his um, championing of the Jews was part and parcel of seeing how Jewish sensibilities got stripped off of the man Jesus and then pasted onto the figure of Western man. And so much of his struggles in the name of the Jews to help them was also in the name of a healing of Christianity. But it was also in the name of, and here Bonhoeffer was struggling to name this. He's growing how he's trying to develop the vocabulary to even name what he's doing here. He's also got to figure out a way to subject his own formation as a German Christian elite man under the microscope. He's got to find a way to put himself under the microscope. He comes back from the U.S. and he starts to do this work. His first, one of the first things he does is he teaches a course in 1932, the very year where they're having the elections in which Hitler will come to power. He teaches a course called Creation and Fall, in which it's a course in which he leads students through an interpretation of the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And in effect, what he does there is through an, a reading of the book of Genesis, he tries to interrogate the false procedures. Oh, man, I'm way over time. He starts to interrogate the false procedures, the, the kind of ideological mobilization of a doctrine of creation that he's retraced, the false creation of Western man. And at the end, by the time you get to the end of the book, he wants to disconnect the figure of Jesus from the ways in which a false humanism has come to operate. He carries this further in his next um, semester where he teaches a course called um, On Christology. We have it as the notes that became the book Christ the Sinner. And there he again starts to dissect and pull apart the ways in which the figure of Jesus and the figure of Western man get sutured together. The figure of Western man in that book is called the Logos, the word of man, the word of a false man. Over against this, he positions the figure of the counter Logos, how Jesus is counter to this. That's Christ the Sinner. 
In the book on discipleship, that one of the key texts in the thinking Balder period, he again continues this Christological interrogation and he culminates the book with a new imagination of space where space is no longer anchored in a false man, Western man, again, around which the rest of the world is situated, but he now wants to rethink space anchored now in the centrality of Jesus and the call to follow him, not the false man. All of his writing, he unpacks this. He's struggling to put himself under the microscope until we finally get to the period of letters and papers from prison. By this time, Bonhoeffer has already participated in a conspiracy to bring down Hitler. Right? Through the first part, the bulk of his imprisonment, the Hitler regime does not have the goods on him. They suspect, but they don't have the smoking gun. By the summer, the beginning of the summer, more or less by the mid towards the end of the summer of 1944, He's going to die. He's going to be executed in February 45. About the, mid, the end of the summer of 1944, the Hitler regime finally gets the goods on Bonhoeffer. They got the smoking gun, and Bonhoeffer quickly learns that they got him, and he's going to die. At this moment, Bonhoeffer starts writing poetry. Now, prior to this moment, Bonhoeffer is still wrapped up in this sense of maybe there's a way to save the German past. He's still got this kind of rhetoric going, maybe there's a way to save the German past. I've skipped over the, um, the ethics, the volume on ethics, especially where you see him still struggling to, to save the German past. And then in his novels and his love letters to his fiancée in the first part of the imprisonment, imprisonment, he's still trying to save the German past and save the German family. But when it becomes clear he's going to die, he goes into this new register. He starts writing poetry on the one hand, and he starts to develop through a series of letters what we now call his quest for a new form of theology, religionless Christianity. Now, religionless Christianity for him is not about can we secularize Christianity. That's a bad, arguing at least, that's a bad reading of what he's doing. Religionless Christianity is his effort to Think a form of Christianity that is uncoupled, right, from the vision of Western man as a homo religiosus, as the, the apogee of the figure of religiosity for man, which is culminated around the figure of Jesus. He wants to pull that vision of Christianity apart from a vision of Western man as a homo religiosus, as a homo modernus. At the same time that he's trying to work this out with his friend, Eberhard Becker, in these letters, he starts writing some poetry. Now, the first poem he writes is when he thinks he's still got a chance. He's still trying to save the past. And he writes a poem called The Past. And he's still trying to work out a kind of saving of the German past. But the second poem he writes at the end of the summer comes when he learns his fate is sealed. He's going to be dying soon. And he writes this poem. Out of here, I'll read it to you. It's short, but it's powerful. And he no longer is asking now in this poem the Christological question, because now he's worked to pull the figure of Jesus apart from the figure of Western man. Now, what he's doing is he finally gets to a point of a kind of self interrogation. If Jesus is now pulled apart from the figure of Western man, the question for us now is 
what is the future of Western man? And the figure of Western man gets read as himself. And he asks this fundamental question in his poem, who am I? Who am I? On the eve of his death, he finally is brought to a crucial point. He knows that the Allied forces are going to win. It's pretty clear the Allied forces are going to win. But he also knows he's going to die. He also knows that he is going to die, and therefore, not unlike Moses, he will be able to look over into the promised land, but won't get there himself. And in fact, one of his last poems is a poem on the life of Moses, which is a kind of quasi-biography about himself. Just like Moses, who went to, the, went, to the, went to the river and was able to look over but not go in, that's him too. And it's not just him personally. It's that form of man that has attached itself to a false Christian vision. That vision of man, that figure can't go on the other side of 1945. In other words, what Bonhoeffer is struggling to articulate in this poem I'm going to read to you is another way to think about the post-racial. Here the post-racial isn't a repression of race. Here the post-racial is an interrogation of its founding figure. Did you catch what I just said? The post-racial for Bonhoeffer, if you want to mobilize this language and read it anachronistically backwards on him, would not mean the repression of race. So that racial supremacy through a kind of Germanic supremacy could continue to live again. Rather, to think about the post-racial is to think about a different future of the human altogether, which Jesus himself opens up. Listen to his poem as I bring this to a close. Who am I? The poem in German is Wer bin ich? Who am I? They, they often tell me, I step out from my cell. Remember, he's in prison. I have to stop doing parentheses. I interrupt my flow of thought, but I have all kinds of thoughts racing through my mind. I mean, another thing that the prison letters open up for us, not the least of which these poems, is not only what it, um, what it means to do theology in the register of the poetic, but also what it means to do theology at the site of incarceration. The site of incarceration is well worth us thinking about. Who am I? They often tell me. I step out from my cell calm and cheerful and poised. Like a squire, a kind of dignitary, from his manner. Who am I? They often tell me. They tell me. I speak with my guards freely, friendly, and clear, as though I were the one in charge. Who am I? They also tell me I bear days, I bear days of calamity, serenely, smiling and proud, like one accustomed to victory. Am I really what others say of me, though? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless, yearning, sick, like a caged bird. 
struggling for life breath as if I were being strangled, starving for colors, for flowers, for birdsong, thirsting for kind words, human closeness, asking, human, yeah, for, uh, asking with rage at power, lust, and piteous insult, tossed about, waiting for great things to happen, helplessly fearing for friends so far away, too tired and empty to pray, to think, to work, weary and ready to take my leave of it all. Who am I? This one or the other? Am I this one today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, before others a hypocrite and in my own eyes a pitiful, whimpering weakling? Or is what remains in me like a defeated army, fleeing in disarray from victory already won? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest me. O oh God, I am thine. Very fascinating poem. Bonhoeffer, in a certain sense through this poem, retraces the very logic by which a certain kind of Aryan German subjectivity, a masculinized Aryan German subjectivity is installed. On the one hand, am I the figure of strength that I portray? On the other hand, am I a fake? Am I really weak? Am I situated between strength and weakness? How do I define my sense as a man, as a German subject? By the time we get to the end of the poem, Bonhoeffer is nothing more than a question mark. Who is Bonhoeffer? He is now the scene of an interrogation that he himself can never answer. Only God can provide an answer. What this means, because God never gives the answer in the poem. He only says God can supply it. God doesn't give it. This means that Bonhoeffer is, at least one way I want to read it, Bonhoeffer is suggesting a vision of his own subjectivity in which he is nothing but a question mark on the one hand, but a future that is yet to arrive on the other. Bonhoeffer's come a long way. The elitist, um, um, German subject who is also the Christian is now the figure who is a question mark to himself. And interestingly, in even asking this, just a mere few years later in 1952, there's going to be a Caribbean Martinican man by the name of Franz Fanon who's going to ask a similar question from the side of blackness. He's going to culminate his book, Black Skin, White Masks, by saying, and this is a quote, and now my final prayer sort of like what Bonhoeffer is doing. Oh, my body, make me ever one who questions. Bonhoeffer, and I'm suggesting indirectly also Fanon, they offer up a new vision of what it means to be human precisely by making us a question to ourselves and the scene of an interrogation. The genius of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this. He understood by the time he got to the end of, the, of his life that the vision of a kind of Aryanized, Western, Westernized man 
could not go anymore into the promised land. It was precisely that vision of the human that had to die and did die in a certain sense in his own person. I'll stop there. All right, well, let's take a few minutes. Um, time for, I know some for pop, but uh, time for just kind of questions, uh, whether from chapel this morning or from uh, lecture he was just giving now. Um, any engagement you want, this is, this is an opportunity mm -hmm. to act. There's some that have class right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry if I made you late for class. No, no, no. Right, it is. Uh, right. So I'm, I'm curious a little bit about both, but maybe start with the devil in the one, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. This is another reception that um, I'm saying is problematic. Mm -hmm. um, it's a reception from the direction of, I have a good way to put this. It's a reception from the direction of, um, a certain kind of Boltmannian existentialist kind of approach to Christianity that was um, that really came into vogue in the um, in the early 1950s and into the throughout the 1950s and into the six into the 60s. Um, interestingly, Karl Barth himself saw this problematic reception of Bonhoeffer, and one of the ways to read, I think, Church Dogmatics 4.1 where he starts to lay out and develop his um, doctrine of reconciliation, the way of the sun into the far country, the judge, judge in our place. That, that whole volume, in many ways, um, has a subtext to it. And part of the subtext is, I think, a disentangling of Bonhoeffer's, the, a kind of Bonhoeffer vision as a way to sort of legitimize a certain kind of Boltmann approach to existentialism. Um, where Bonhoeffer gets read as um, another figure who's trying to really put the kind of uh, sense of Western consciousness, um, um, Western Christian consciousness on a new kind of footing. And so Bonhoeffer was getting mobilized for this and right at the site of religionless Christianity through this notion of the kind of secular, right, the existential and all this stuff. Um, in agreement with Bart, though I've got other interest in Bart, um, I'm pushing, a, a pushing back against this because I don't think that what's at stake in Bonhoeffer's talking about religionlessness um, versus the religious is um, a statement that's sort of valorizing the secular over the sacred. Um, I don't think that that at all is what's at stake. Um, I sort of hinted at what's at stake in retracing the kind of geography that I did. What I was doing in the geography in short was trying to trace the ways in which um, a vision of modern Western man as the kind of anchoring figure of um, Western global supremacy, right, is actually has this certain kind of religious Christian logic inside of it, which is, and it's tied to the ways in which the figure of Jesus sort of comes alongside and is made to sort of sanctify the project of the West and its key figure, Western man. That also is the operation of the religious. 
So if you think about, for example, a person like Immanuel Kant, religion within the limits of reason alone, for him, he takes it that, and even a figure like you know, Hegel, if you take the phenomenology of spirit. Um, th these are philosophers who believe that Western consciousness is the highest form of the religious spirit. And the highest form of the religious spirit is precisely its ability to divest itself even of the religious and become secular or universal, which is to say global, right? So it's a part of the whole procedures of coloniality and imperialism, right? And so to, to, to sort of play this kind of the secular over against the sacred, the sacred over against the secular is to actually miss the ways in which the secular grows out of a certain religious orientation anchored in the West that has the privilege because of its supported, its, its claim, its vaulted claims to universality to divest itself of even the religious, which is, you know, in many ways they'll say, this is what, you know, the Muslims can do. This is what these savages can do. They're mired in their religiosity, and if need be, they don't know how to divest themselves from it and become universal. We can be religious and, in our religiosity, deny our religiosity and become secular. So what I'm trying to suggest is that what's at stake in religionless Christianity is Bonhoeffer's attempt to actually drill inside of that whole dynamic and really basically say, we need a vision of Christianity that's uncoupled from the very procedures of religiosity, which now have become procedures of secularity itself. But isn't that, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to be talking, I, I won't, mm -hmm. but because this, this is Bart and Roman's commentary attacking Harnack and the whole liberal tradition mm -hmm. to say everywhere in Romans that you read how problematic law is, substitute religion. Uh -huh. And religion's actually the enemy. Uh -huh. So when Bonhoeffer says religionless Christianity is a good thing, he's just following Bart there. So mm -hmm. when Bishop Robinson or someone uses him, but I was going to, well, well, but I'm curious because, <laughs> because I, mm -hmm. I agree with your reading, mm -hmm. but, but so Bart's concern with religion mm -hmm. is it's just anthropology. Yeah. Right? And, and so when Bonhoeffer is advocating a religionless Christianity, you know, or, or calling into question these things. Uh -huh. I agree, Bishop Robinson and others, mm -hmm. abuse and misunderstand what he's doing. Uh -huh. But at the same time, it seems that if, if the critique of religion is the critique of over-anthropological, anthropological rather than transcendent, uh -huh. I'm trying to figure out how in your concern of a post-colonial, how that fits. In other words, mm -hmm. it's necessarily an anthropological concern you have, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so out of the trajectory of watch out about religion, look at how it gets sanitized, and now all of a sudden you're writing letters supporting the war, mm -hmm. confusing these things. Uh -huh. No, 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 let the transcendent smash in there. Right. As you're, I, I don't know how to form it into a coherent question, but I, I have the sense of, how does the transcendent that I think Bart is definitely trying to emphasize, right. and I think Bonhoeffer is too, right? How does that fit then in in light of this critique of? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I I think I got we 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 we're trying to um um place pressure on me. Um, first, to stipulate, I think you're right, Bart. Um, in, in the Romans commentary, I mean, Bart, you're right. He is doing a kind of um, critique of religion as it becomes a kind of critique of religion as um, anthropology. 
the where I would where where I would sort of add to this is to say if we only stop at that point, I still don't think we appreciate the force of what Bart was trying to do, slash. Well, let's see, what Bart was trying to do with an emphasis on trying, with an emphasis on trying. That is to say, I, there are these moments in the, in the Romans commentary where Bart sort of begins to gesture to the fact that he can't just say it's an anthropological problem. The anthropological problem, if you only stay that way, is too abstract. And Bart himself, I mean, doesn't want to, be, doesn't want to think abstractly, but he, he, he's, he's hard-pressed to sort of narrate the anthropological problem as the problem of Western man. The, that is to say, the anthropological problem is the problem of a certain vision of the human in which what it means to be human becomes overdetermined by the figure of the Western man. And, and, and therefore, what Bart, I think, is groping towards doing, though he's definitely on the right track, he's groping towards analyzing the anthropological problem and therefore the religious problem as the problem of his own formation as a Western man. The, 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 the figure of Europeanized man is precisely the figure that doesn't come sharp enough into view, though Bart is pressing in that way, and then there's these fleeting moments in which you sort of see him almost say it, basically. But it's not thoroughly and um, completely theorized all the way out. I think Bonhoeffer is also wanting to interrogate the same figure. And you're right, the smashing in is designed to sort of like, you know, smash that figure. That's exactly right. But I think the difference between um, Bart and Bonhoeffer on one side and what I'm trying to do on the other, I think that, no, neither one of them, I'm not going to get them off the hook. They don't do this. They really don't do it. They're, they're trying to do it, but they don't pull it off. And that is to say, what they don't appreciate from my vantage point, is how the gesture of a kind of transcendence that will sort of smash and um, bring under judgment of a certain sort, Western supremacy, how that um, transcendent moment is not merely, as you know, Bart would lay it out using his Kierkegaard language, a kind of transcendence from beyond, where you're just like, well, where is this coming from? You know, um, a, a kind of God that's out there. It sort of invades our world and sort of like smashes it from, from, from without. What I want to do is sort of suggest by way of, you know, I've, I've actually written um, a pretty substantive essay on this um, and starting to write more on it around Bart, but argue from the vantage point of a certain kind of black intellectual tradition that the logic of transcendence, the moment of the kind of inbreaking, actually happens not from a kind of space without where God comes from, you know, the spatial nowheres, like where it was, you know, Mars or something, what is this? Um, rather than looking at it that way, the moment of transcendence bubbles up from within the order of creation and more specifically from within the order of the black Atlantic circuit itself. And so in other words, the, the, um, the colony begins to speak back. And so, um, let me see if I can make this a little bit plainer. Um, because what I'm trying to do is hold the transcendence move, but say the place of transcendence is not the zone. Okay, here's an angle. Let me let me route a few scriptures. You know, you're always good when you run by the Bible. You're, it's always good to run this by the Bible because I think the Bible gives us, especially when you're at a Christian college, I, I think the Bible does give us some ways to maybe think about this. I'm thinking about the Philippian hymn, right? 
that's what I was hoping. I, the Philippians the only way to do the transcendent and anthropological and appropriate way is Christological. Is you do it Christological. Bar, Bonhoeffer, I think, does, even in the late letters and papers. Right. I mean, they're doing it Christologically, but there's a sense in which, and actually in some respects, I mean, I keep going back and forth on this. I mean, I, there are ways to read them charitably where they try and pull this off, but then there are ways to say, you know, you're just being too nice to them. They don't really pull this off. They see it as an issue, but they can't quite get all the way there. And that is to say that the figure of transcendence turns out to be the figure of the slave. Now, on one level, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking in a double register. It's the figure of the slave by way of the Philippians hymn where God takes the form in Jesus Christ of a human being, but not just a human being. God enters into the circuitry of, in the economy of <laughs> domination through the sight of the dominated. And, 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 there, and thereby, the sight of the dominated becomes the sight of transcendence within an imminent order. So it doesn't have this feel of, you know, a kind of meteorite just crashing out of nowhere. But actually, the place of redemption, the place of, um, of, a, of new possibility, is this uncontainable space right inside of the space of a kind of um, order of domination. It comes from the unexpected site, the site of the slave, the black Atlantic, so on and so forth. So it's, in some sense, it's almost expected that if Bonhoeffer is going to begin to get his insight, it comes when he steps inside the black Atlantic. And so it's the site of the slave. That's one way we can talk about it scripturally, but it's the site of the slave. That is to say, when we talk about it within the co contemporary modern world, it proves to be slave beings, slave existence, the, the colonized. Those become the places where a new kind of transcendence opens itself up. Now, but if Bonhoeffer and Bart are going to pull this off, that means they're going to have to look at the black world, which they don't do. Yeah, I just, well, I, I, I want to keep pursuing it, but we need to open it up. I, I, I'm very sympathetic. I just want to keep getting it. Because, in light of your own critique, I think, uh -huh. actually, is to get back to a concrete, particular Jesus. Right. Otherwise, we, 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 we make him a Western man, or we make him another, right? And right. So, and, and okay, I, I, are, I, I, okay. Actually, in order for this transcendence yeah, 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 to be yeah. meaningful, yeah, yeah. and not just do whatever you want with it, Right, right. You've got to have a historical, real Jesus. Right, right, right. It, you know, those kinds I, of I, now I see more where you're coming from. Can, if you don't mind, can I take just another minute? Because this is actually an important point, and it's, it's crucial to what I'm trying to do. Um, the, re the response I'll give you at this point is when Bonhoeffer gets into, and I didn't talk about this, when Bonhoeffer um, comes into Harlem, there, I suggested, though I didn't detail out, there's a rigorous kind of conversation that's happening, mainly through art and, and, and literary art, but also the, the, um, the, the visual arts. So it's not just literary art, but it's the visual art. I'm going to talk about literary, um, the literary wing of the Harlem Renaissance. There's a rigorous conversation that's happening. And that conversation is this. I suggested earlier that there's a serious interrogation of basically the white Christ. So, you know, the white Christ as that figure that is basically grounding you know, a lynching society. And they're trying to both diagnose that problem and say, we gotta if we're going to think religion, we got to think otherwise, right? And so you get County Cullen, he writes about the black Christ. One of the key moves that happens in County Cullen, maybe a paragon of this, they go on the other side and they talk about a black Christ, right? We don't need a white Christ. 
you need a black Christ. And there's some reasons why they, they work, work this out. Got it, fine. Now, of course, the, 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 with the proviso of appreciation, we understand the potential dangers in that, right? That you just sort of relocate the problem and you sort of, you can create other, other issues if you go that way, right? There is, in, in Christiana, we talked about, you know this, you know what I'm going to say. There's an important um, writer as well, though, in this time period who offers a, a path not rarely taken. His name is W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, in 1920, Du Bois, within one year of the publication of, of Bart's second edition of the Ramabus in 21, though they didn't know each other, he too writes, writes about the new constellation of Western hegemony that's coming after World War I. Bart is doing it, and Du Bois is doing it. Bart's doing it from the Metropolitan Center of Europe, Metropolitan Centers of Europe. Du Bois is going to do it from the Black Atlantic. And what he does in one of the stories in this book, um, Dark Water, that's the title of the book, Voices from Within the Veil, the, the, the piece of writing that is at the center of the book, so if you count in, it's an it's, it's a, it's a amazing book. And it's multi-genre, it's, it's got sociological analysis, historical analysis, poems, short stories, novellas. And so it's just, but if you count in from the front end and the back end of the book, evenly and come to the center, there's a story right at the center of the book. It's called Jesus Christ in Texas. He's supposed to laugh. <laughs> it is funny. It's a, it's a hoot. Jesus Christ in Texas. The long and short of the story of Jesus Christ in Texas is Bar um, Du Bois himself is interrogating the Christological foundations of white supremacy, of U.S. culture. And what he does is crucial. He reads, basically, how it's grounded in the figure of Jesus, and he tries to tell a story in which Jesus is not simply the certification of U.S. culture and a white racial order. And what he does is he does not position Jesus as black, contrary to a host of writing that's happening at this time. What he does is he stages Jesus as a Jew. Builds the whole story around Jesus, this Jewish figure who's unrecognizable to the order of things and the people around him. They simply call him the stranger. And when they get a glimpse of who he really is, it's sort of, you know, this moment of revelation. It blows the story apart. Now, in telling the story of Jesus as a Jew, Du Bois brilliantly, I mean, I'm telling you, many theologians haven't caught up with this man's literary insight. What Du Bois does is not only does he say Jesus is a Jew, he in effect says Jesus is a Jew, but do not interpret this according to the codes of raciality. To be a Jew is not to be a part of a... a the Jewish race group. So not only does he say Jesus is a Jew, he tries to uncouple the meaning of Jewishness from the systems of racialization. Now, now think about this for a second. Most of the time when we think about Jew, or you name the ethnic group, we already got it slotted inside of the racial frame. And so many of us, we don't know how to get our heads around what is he trying to say? What does it mean to think Jewish existence non-racially? Now, in my book, I mobilized a category to try and talk about this, to struggle and rope my way into it. I hadn't read Du Bois yet, so I feel like I'm in good company. <laughs> but I, I said, we must think Jewish existence not racially, but we must think it covenantally. The covenant is not the reiteration of race in religious terms. 
that's in fact the case. What does covenant mean? What is covenantal identity? Du Bois himself is groping to, to, uh, to find a way to narrate this strange figure as a Jewish Jesus who does not obey the protocols of racialization. And the way he literally tries to sort of capture this is he says this. At one point in the story he says, the lights came on. We saw that he wore the Jewish garb. Remember, he's in New York City, right? He's thinking Hasidic Orthodox Jews. He's, they're wearing the Jewish garbs with the curly hair, he says. So everything is signifying by way of dress and so forth and habit that this is a Jew. Then he says, but he had the yellow skin, right? Had a drop of the mulatto blood. So he starts throwing around all of these racial codes that disorders, this, that sort of, um, sort of sends our racial imaginations into a kind of vertigo. It's like, wait a minute, what is going on here? He says on the one hand that this is a Jew, but got the yellow skin. So is this like an Asian of some sort? Then he says, it's got the mulatto blood, so it's got some whiteness going on here. The, the scene is wild in the way he lays, lays it out. I've written on this, and I basically have argued that what Du Bois is trying to do is he's trying to show how the figure of Jesus enters into the economy of racial domination, but because the codes of raciality are at the end of the day fictive, though that fiction possesses social and cultural power over us now, but still fictive, Jesus does not obey those social codes. He is disobedient. He is a disobedient Jesus. That's who he is. And in this very powerful literary move, Du Bois tries to capture the Jewishness of Jesus, but do so in such a way that that Jewishness is not simply a new kind of reiteration of raciality. I like if, again, to come back contemporarily, again, I think it's a powerful way to sort of then intervene into the Jewish-Palestinian conflict. Because part of what's Part of what's at stake now around Jewish existence in Palestine is that Jewish existence in Palestine has come to be installed post-World War II again as a scene of racialization. Who are the Jews against that backdrop? The Jews are that race group who don't have a home in our race group, so we export them to the Middle East. But in that exportation, we force them to carry the seeds of raciality in, in themselves and reproduce it now in the Middle East, such that they need an other in order to constitute themselves as the Jews. The name of that negative other there is the Palestinian. Do, do you sort of see where I'm oh, getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me, um, we, I know we just took up a lot. Of, uh, but yeah, we'll do uh, maybe a, one last question. <laughs> I got time. Yeah, got and, time. Then we'll, and then we'll just hang out, but I'll yeah. give everyone freedom to say something. Uh, I have some questions. A lot of what you said went over my head. Okay. Uh, but I would like you to comment on some of my perspectives on some of the topics you raised. Okay. A couple of topics. Uh, on the matter of religionless Christianity, I didn't figure out exactly what the definition was. But when I think of religion, I think of that's an attempt to define and explain our relationship to God. 
Okay. The state that's going to have an anthropology which doesn't compute with you at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you were reading the, the poem, at the end of the poem, mm-hmm. it seemed to me that Bonhoeffer wasn't identifying <coughs> himself as strong or weak. Uh huh. And that's that's the central part of what it means to be Christian. <laughs> Race doesn't matter, mm-hmm. really. And I, I think we're going to have a lot of talk about racism as long as it matters to us a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you brought up the second thing. You brought up something about white Jesus. Uh huh. Something like uh-huh. that. Uh huh. That was part of the, the, the American. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Um, I've been in white Christian churches for 30 years. I've never heard that. I've never heard any. Uh, you're saying, of course, of course, it's the role that's verbalized. Mm-hmm. But uh, what is what is central and whatever any any Christian that I know of that uh, has credibility mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And we, and what do we know about Christ? Well, he is the Jewish mm-hmm. Christ in the sense of his covenant, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other kind of Jewishness is rather irrelevant. Uh, but it seems to me that we need we need to be in a place where race is not a significant factor. Right. As long as we're treating it as a significant factor, then we're going to be troubled. Yeah, um, you threw a lot out there. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can just offer maybe a few comments that um, that we begin to try and satisfy some of your questions. One, I think that um, this this is state. Let me just sort of stipulate a fundamental premise of this whole conversation, and a premise indeed of how not only I'm reading Bonhoeffer, but I think he needs to be read, and that is that the modern world, in its unfolding from um, its 15th century, shall we say, inception onwards, I have a reason for choosing the 15th century, not the least of which is the opening up of the transatlantic by way of people like Columbus, but there are other reasons as well that I can't go into, but the, the emergence of the modern world from the 15th century forward is a racial production. It's a racial production. The the birth of the modern world and the genesis of raciality coincide. And therefore, to be a denizen of the modern world, a resident of the modern world, is to be inside of the procedures of racialization benounced or unbeknownst to one whether one likes it or not. Further still, to be inside of the architecture of racialization by virtue of being a a subject in the modern world, a figure of the modern world, is to be inside of the ways in which Christian discourse aided and abetted, indeed, 
It's theologians midwifed this creation. Theologians did this. Again, there's a lot that I'm, I'm not going into here. I mean, if I had time, I could talk about the crucially important um, theological school at the University of Salamanca, Spain, which was the ground zero of the intellectuals, and they were theologians, of the, and they were Thomist intellectuals to boot, and they were orthodox. These were Trinitarian Christological thinkers. They were the ground zero that gave intellectual clarity to what was going on, and they read it as Christian. Now, given all of that, we've got a gargantuan task in front of us if we would dare to name ourselves Christian. How do you hold on to a Christianity that has a five, six hundred year legacy of this? That, I'm contending, is the fundamental problem that Bonhoeffer backed himself into. At, a, at the core of it, that's what he backed himself into. And he backed himself into it when he comes in contact with a people group he never expected to come in contact with. These people in Harlem, Cuba, Washington, D.C., Howard, who are struggling to re-narrate the terms of Christian faith and in some way disentangle it away from its entanglements with raciality. That's fundamentally what Bonhoeffer is about. And therefore, I'm suggesting that Bonhoeffer rewrites the terms, if I can give, put this term anachronistically back on him, he rewrites the terms of what the post-racial got, has got to mean if that term is going to have any currency. Post-racial is not the running away from race. Post-racial is not the after of race. The post-racial has to become a strategy to deal with the afterlife of race. The afterlife of race. And for Bonhoeffer, it meant he no longer could ground himself in a vision of subjectivity, of Western subjectivity, as the strong man. That's the first part of the poem. He says, no, that don't work. Nor can it ground itself in a vision of Western subjectivity as, shall we say, the weak man. Now, I didn't go into this when I was you know, interpreting this, but I think it's very important or useful to hear that stanza against the backdrop of the, the thematics of the white man's burden which was a discourse that comes out of the 19th century that basically says, no longer will we execute our imperialist ambitions as Western folks through a kind of um, violent frontal assault on the so-called savage. It's our job to take what we can from them, add them, to our, our, add them to ourselves, and bring them up the chain of civilization. That's the white man's burden, right? Um, I'm thinking of the poet um, um, who, who coins this phrase, the British poet, um, Kipling, thank you, Kipling, thank you. He's the one at the end of the 19th century at a time that coordinates with Joseph Conrad's thinking, the, thinking similarly in the heart of darkness, right? And the dangers of living into the white man's burden, them savages might contaminate you, right? That's the, that's the heart of darkness. But they're trying to think through, if we're not the strong, violent man, how do we carry forth this posture of humility, a more benevolent imperialism, live into a posture of a new kind of strength as weakness? That doesn't work. That's the second stanza. He X's that out. And then we get to the final end of the stanza, and what is the answer? It's a double answer. On the one hand, I cannot, I cannot answer the question, who am I? 
the very posing of the question suggesting that I can answer the question, who am I, would lead me to suggest or think that I can ground myself. I am not self-grounded, which is the fundamental mistake of this kind of Gentile hubris, that I can ground myself. Jesus the Jew calls the Gentile to recognize that you are entering into a faith that don't belong to you. Not only does it not belong to you, you ain't got no business up in this party. In fact, I ain't even speaking your language in this party. This is a Hebrew thing. And the only reason y'all Christian Gentiles are in this thing is because of some renegade Jew who was in the party and said, I'm going to go out and bring the, bring the people from the highways and the byways in. And in fact, some of us Jews didn't like that Jew for what he did. Bringing all these crazy folk up inside our family. What's wrong with that Jew? That was Jesus. It's a, <laughs> what's wrong with him doing that? But what has happened is the forgetfulness this kind of problem of Gentile forgetfulness is part and parcel of the production of a kind of racial supremacy. The problematic of race is the problematic of Christian supersessionism is what I'm trying to say. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that Bonhoeffer himself backs, his, backs himself into this problem. And what does this concretely mean for you and me? The horizon of my research is not to bash white people, <laughs> so to say that. I got many white friends. I love white people. Trust me. <laughs> love. I just hope they love me back. <laughs> Can we all get some love? <laughs> I love white people. So the horizon of my critique is not white people are guilty. No. The horizon of my critique is a call to live into the interruption that is Christianity. See, the problem is this. In many ways, our Christianity does not disturb our formation. And the genius of Bonhoeffer and Abarth, for whatever else you say about them, they understood that the project of theology could no longer go forward until they themselves became the object of critique. Their own formation had to become a problem for them. Christianity caused their own formation to become a problem for them. For too many of us, becoming Christianity doesn't problematize nothing. It certifies the trajectory we own. And what, what the horizon of my work is for a disturbing Christianity. We no longer have a disturbing Christianity. I want a Christianity that disturbs. It disturbs us. Um, because I, I do want to honor people's time. Uh, he's going to stay around for a little bit before we sneak him out to dinner. So let's... let's can, can, I, can I ask just one favor? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to extend this any longer because, um, you know, I want to take a little break. But I haven't heard from any students. And yeah, I at least please. want to hear from can, I, I, can, can I ask, yeah, a, can yeah. may a student at least no, ask no, no, a question? No. If not, no, no pressure. But, I mean, I don't want it to just, you know, we could, please. you know, academics talk about this all the time. But I really would love to hear from, love from a student. Yeah. If not, like how, how can we do that better? Wow, 
great question. Maybe I shouldn't ask a student to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Asking me these questions of practice. <laughs> Asking me what this looked like in the world. Man. <laughs> um, well, I, I think it would be great if we could do more lamenting. If we could um, really try and discern what lamenting even means. I'm not sure we even know what it means. Um, I don't think that lament should be equated with the resolution of a kind of guilty conscience because of, you know, maybe what my church has historically done. I don't, that's not lament, that's not lamentation. Um, it could be a form of trying to heal uh, a certain kind of bruised subject, <laughs> I mean, which is, which is still a part of the problem. So I think we need to figure out what lamentation even means. I have a suggestion of what it might start to mean. And, and in some sense, this is a suggestion, but I really do want to defer also, or at least be in a conversation with actual pastors and church practitioners, because they, they're trying to figure this out and do this, right? So again, with that proviso, I think maybe one way we could think about what lamentation might mean is we need to be reschooled in the gift of audition. That is to say, the gift of hearing. I think that to lament requires ears to hear. Um, what I love about the way in which Bonhoeffer ended his poem, he ended it on a question mark, so to speak. That is, waiting for the answer that is to come. He didn't end with an answer, as it were. He ended with a question. And I think, you know, maybe lamentation has something to do with learning how to hear from the despised and the rejected. To hear from the despised and the rejected. And to hear in listening to them what the Spirit is saying through them. And finally, to understand that in hearing from the despised and the rejected, that this is crucial to the working out of salvation. That salvation in some sense is going to turn on hearing, having the ears to hear the despised and the rejected. I think that's, that's part of a, maybe a lamentation, something towards a liturgy of renewal that um, it, it, wherein blues becomes hope. So I, I, that's what I would sort of suggest. And I, I say that with a, as a kind of invitation to be in conversation with actual practitioners who are, who are trying to think about what it means to hear the despised and the rejected who, you know, in cities like Chicago um, are, 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 you know, people struggling because of their cities are bullet ridden, but yet they get read as cities where this is supposed to happen, whereas Newtown is, of course, the place where it's not supposed to happen. What does it mean to hear the cries of the despised and the rejected like that, you know? What does it mean to enter into lamentation over that? You know, which is just one example. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's like just in our present history because we're in between the resurrection, which is the ground of our hope, and um, mm -hmm. the future, which is like the fulfillment of our hope. Mm -hmm. I think it's all too easy um, to not be steeped in that, like lament. Yeah. But to, to 
forego then chasing what momentum and, and the blues yeah. by uh, reducing our thoughts to, 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 to just playing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you very, very much. Come on, listen. And then I'll come I'll get his assistant back too. Yeah. From my understanding of how you um, you interpreted post integration religion, mm -hmm. do you think that integration approach can really be carried into the world of people not or recognize that I uh, look over or look past that spiritual world of sin? Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I don't think, and we could probably talk about this more, and I'll make this very, very brief because this is clearly a, a kind of, this is a big kind of question conversation. And actually it comes back to the fine questions here actually as well. Um, that race is such that you don't look around it, over it, or past it. You go through it. Moreover, one must, I think, always ask themselves, what kind of subject position can imagine themselves able to look around it, over it, past it? Everybody don't have that luxury, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so, 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 so society would be a society that doesn't ignore race, refuse to talk about race, that pays attention to race, to go through race. Do something more just. That's exactly right. It, it, in, in order to get to something more just, it realizes that it must go through. I mean, just think about this, to talk about lamentation. We've never had a, a ritual of public lamentation around the history of race in this country that founds the country from the founding documents on. It's not like, you know, you know, the problems of slavery and so forth was so just some sort of hiccup and mistake, you know, the bad application of these laws, bad application of the founding documents. No. The signatures of racialization and slavery are in the origin. It's born through it. We've never as a culture had anything like some sort of ritual of public lamentation. Now, some might want to say, well, the King holiday might be the beginning of it, but in many ways, that's a sanitizing of King. I mean, that's a king for whom we conveniently forget that he dies opposing the Vietnam War and in the Poor People's Campaign, linking poverty, linking with global war, with racial processes. All of that is lopped off. And in fact, he was disowned by the president when he made these moves. In the cultural imagination, that's not on the table. That's not the king we tend to think of when you go to the, Martin, to the you know, monument down there now in Washington, D.C. So I think that helps make the point that we don't have any kind of public ritual around this. And I don't think churches have it either. I mean, there, and therein lies the problem. I'm sorry, say that one more time. Um, if I said that, I, I certainly spoke wrong or didn't mean to say that or I was maybe talking too fast. Um, I'm trying to think of that because I did mention the new, where, oh, what I, what was this, what was it, um, maybe I can find it. It's right here. <laughs> um, the Newtown Massacre, it should be easy to find, where I said, okay, it's before that. Right. Okay, I found it. 
says, in Lamentations, the writer runs his jagged finger over the edges of his experience being, um, being a member and a partaker of the kingdom of God and the blessings of the God of Israel. His experience has changed. It used to be smooth and easy flowing, but now exile, pain, grief, and difficulty has shattered that experience. His mind is filled with the challenges before him. His mind is filled with suffering, not unlike the situation of Newtown, which was, which was before the shooting, once smooth and placid. I mean, it's suburban America, right? This ain't supposed to happen here. It was smooth and placid, like a beautiful, picturesque, and untouched lake nestled between, again, the picturesque snow-capped mountains, but, um, but then became jagged because of the bullets of, a, um, uh, the bullets of death from a deranged gunman. In this way also, our writer fingers or finds himself in a jagged moment of pain, grief, exile, the loss of blessing. And so what I was trying to do was to sort of make a kind of connection between the Newtown scene as once being this place where this isn't supposed to happen. You know, the whole Newtown thing is just really fascinating. I mean, there's, there's some interesting stuff being written. Um, uh, a guy named, um, actually, it's this guy, Leonard, he wrote a really interesting article on um, it's a website. He wrote this really interesting article. And what he was going after in this piece is well worth us thinking about, about you know, how do we begin to explain or try and put our heads around this phenomenon of basically distraught young white men picking up guns and killing like this? And how do we get our heads around the fact that they, they become the objects of cultural malaise and concern when similar shootings from Chicago to LA to Philly, where I'm from, don't garner the same kind of cultural sympathy. What does that say? He's not saying don't take Newtown seriously. He's trying to ask the procedures of cultural attention that are going on. What garners cultural attention and what doesn't, and why? You know, and I think that's part of the jagged grain of our kind of cultural blues moment. You know, I don't know if that begins to answer or at least clarify maybe what I was saying. Does it? A little bit? Okay, yeah. Join me in and thanking our guests. He'll be around for a few minutes.